Hello. My name is Dr. Mercurio Arborea, and I am the founder of the Arborea Institute. Through our unique blend of benign pharmacology, sensory therapy, and energy sculpting, we can guide you to a new, better, happier you. You're about to embark on a great journey. Let the new age of enlightenment begin. What is at stake is more than one small country. It is a big idea. A new world order. It's no longer a theory. What I'm about to say is fact. The secret organizations of the world power elite are no longer secret. They have planned and are now leading us into a one world communist government. Welcome useless eaters to the Odd Man Out podcast where we talk about hidden history, de-political policy, occult deconstruction, economics, religion, and philosophy. I'm your rabbit hole aficionado, the odd man. Welcome. The affirmative task we have now is, uh, is to actually um, uh, create uh, uh, a new world order. Public policy could itself become the captain of a scientific, technological elite. And when that first cocaine was smuggled in on a ship, it may as well have been a deadly bacteria so much as it hurt the body, the soul of our country. But take my word for it, this scourge will stop. The Mormons teach that everyone must stand at the final judgment before Joseph Smith, the Mormon Jesus, and Elohim. Those Mormons who were sealed in the eternal marriage ceremony expect to become polygamous gods in the celestial kingdom, rule over other planets, and spawn new families throughout eternity. The Mormons thank God for Joseph Smith, who claimed that he had done more for us than any other man, including Jesus Christ. The Mormons believe that he died as a martyr, shed his blood for us, so that we too, may become gods. In the spring of 1820, at the age of 14, a young man named Joseph Smith claims he was walking through the woods, pondering about life and the hereafter, religion, God. And he kneeled down to pray. He said, at that moment, a pillar of light shining as brightly as the sun appeared over his head and told him, mainly, that all Christian churches were corrupt and that he should not join any of them. From Joseph Smith History, chapter 1, we get a telling of that. And it says here in verse 18, My object in going to inquire of the Lord was to know which of all the sects was right, that I might know which to join. Now, no sooner, therefore, did I get possession of myself so as to be able to speak than I asked the personages who stood above me in the light which of all the sects was right. For at this time, it had never entered into my heart that all could be wrong and which I should join. 19. I was answered that I must join none of them, for they were all wrong, and the personage who addressed me said, 
that all their creeds were an abomination in his sight, that all those professors were all corrupt, that they draw near to me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They teach for doctrines of commandments of men having forms of godliness, but they deny the power thereof. And that last part is taken directly from the Bible. Verse 20, He again forbade me to join with any of them, and many other things did he say unto me, which I cannot write at this time. When I came to myself again, I found myself lying on my back, looking up into heaven. When the light had departed, I had no strength. But soon recovering, in some degree, I went home, and as I leaned up to the fireplace, Mother inquired, What was the matter? I replied, Never mind, all is well. I am well enough off. I then said to my mother, I have learned for myself that Presbyterianism is not true. It seems as though the adversary was aware at a very early period of my life and that I was destined to prove a disturber and an annoyer of his kingdom. Else why should the powers of darkness combine against me? Why the opposition and persecution that arose against me almost in my infancy? Three years later, at the age of 17, this would be 1823, Joseph Smith claims he had a visitation once again, this time in his room at home, an angel named Moroni, who had, in a previous life as a human, been living in ancient Babylon, appeared before him in his room and told him about golden plates with sacred information that would save the souls of the world, and they were hidden in a place called Hill Kumora near Palmyra, New York. He said as the angel was talking, he had a vision of exactly where the plates were located. He said that the plates were inscribed with a reform Egyptian language, and that Moroni told him he would find with the plates two seer stones called Urim and Thummim that would allow him to translate the book. Now keep in mind, he says they were in the Egyptian language, not Hebrew or even Greek. That's important. He says, then the angel Moroni went away, then came back to me two more times that night. He told me many things each time, then left when it was morning. He said he got up, went to work on his father's farm. It would be four years later, at the age of 21, that Smith would allegedly transcribe the plates from their reformed Egyptian to English. Now, it was actually revealed that Joseph Smith had been leading expeditions to Hill Kamorai using a peep stone or a seer stone, claiming that the stone would show him visions of where hidden items were, and he would charge people to take them up there and see if he could find those items. Now, this went on for quite a while, and he was known to have a wild imagination. Eventually, people caught on because they never found anything, and he was eventually brought up on charges of fraud. Now, back to the official Joseph Smith history. This is verse 27. It says, Moroni appears to Joseph Smith. Joseph's name is to be known for good and evil among all nations. Moroni tells him of the Book of Mormon and of the coming judgments of the Lord and quotes many scriptures. The hiding place of the gold plates is revealed. Moroni continues to instruct the prophet. Verse 27. I continue to pursue my common vocations in life until the 21st of September, 1823, all the time suffering severe persecution at the hands of all classes of men, both religious and irreligious, because I continued to affirm that I had seen a vision. 
During the space of time which intervened between the time I had the vision and the year 1823, having been forbidden to join any of the religious sects of the day and being of very tender years and persecuted by those who ought to have been my friends and to have treated me kindly, and if they supposed me to be deluded to have endeavored in a proper and affectionate manner to have reclaimed me, I was left to all kinds of temptations and mingling with all kinds of society. I frequently fell into many foolish errors and displayed a weakness of youth and the foibles of human nature, which I am sorry to say, led me into diverse temptations, offensive in the sight of God. In making this confession, no one need suppose me guilty of any great or malignant sins. A disposition to commit such was never in my nature, but I was guilty of levity, and sometimes associated with jovial company, etc., not consistent with that character which ought to be maintained by one who was called by God as I had been. But this will not seem very strange to anyone who recollects my youth and is acquainted with my native cheery temperament. Verse 30. While I was thus in the act of calling upon God, I discovered a light appearing in my room, which continued to increase until the room was lighter than at noonday, when immediately a personage appeared at my bedside, standing in the air, for his feet did not touch the floor. He had on a loose robe of most exquisite whiteness. It was a whiteness beyond anything earthly I had ever seen, nor do I believe that any earthly thing could be made to appear so exceedingly white and brilliant. His hands were naked, and his arms also, a little above the wrist. So also were his feet naked, as were his legs, and a little above the ankles. His head and his neck were also bare. I could discover that he had no other clothing on but his robe, as it was open, so that I could see into his bosom. Not only was his robe exceedingly white, but his whole person was glorious beyond description, and his countenance truly like lightning. The room was exceedingly light, but not so very bright as immediately around his person. When I first looked upon him, I was afraid, but the fear soon left me. Verse 33. He called me by name and said unto me that he was a messenger sent from the presence of God to me, and that his name was Moroni, that God had work for me to do, and that my name should be had for good and evil among all nations, kindreds, and tongues, or that it should be both good and evil spoken of among all people. He said there was a book deposited, written upon gold plates, given an account of the former inhabitants of this continent, and the source from whence they sprang. He also said that the fullness of the everlasting gospel was contained in it, as delivered by the Savior to the ancient inhabitants. Also, that there were two stones in silver bows, and these stones, fastened to a breastplate, constituted what is called the Urim and Thummim. Deposited with the plates, and the possession and use of these stones were what constituted seers in ancient or former times, and that God had prepared them for the purpose of translating the book. After telling me these things, he commenced quoting the prophecies of the Old Testament. Thus, behold, I will reveal unto you the priesthood by the hand of Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Verse 42. Again he told me that when I got those plates of which he had spoken, for the time that they should be obtained was not yet fulfilled. I should not show them to any person neither the breastplate with the Urim or the Thummim, only to those whom I should be commanded to show them. If I did, I should be destroyed. 
While he was conversing with me about the plates, the vision was opened to my mind that I could see the place where the plates were deposited, and that so clearly and distinctly that I knew the place again when I visited it. Now keep in mind that this would be four years later, at the age of 21, when Joseph Smith claims he began to transcribe the gold plates. This is a direct quote. I translated the Book of Mormon from hieroglyphics, the knowledge of which was lost to the world, in which this wonderful event I stood alone, an unlearned youth, to combat the worldly wisdom and multiplied ignorance of 18 centuries with a new revelation, which, if they would receive the everlasting gospel, would open up the eyes of more than 800 million people and make the plain old paths wherein if a man walk in all the ordinances of God blameless, he shall inherit eternal life. That's the history of the church. Another quote. The Book of Mormon is a record of the forefathers of the western tribes of Indians, having been found through the ministration of a holy angel and translated into our own language by the gift and power of God. After having been hid up in the earth for the last 1,400 years, containing the word of God, which was delivered unto them. Also, history of the church. In other books, Joseph Smith talks about the place he found the gold plates, or allegedly found them. And he said it was a cave, a room like a cave, basically. And that there were so many plates, it would have taken at least 10 men to carry them all. Now, estimations of solid gold plates, and he even describes the exact size of them, the estimations would say that those weighed about 200 pounds apiece. So he claims he took these plates, which would have been about 400 pounds, and that the earth closed back up after they left. Now, Joseph Smith was known to have a very creative imagination, there's people who've testified to that, including his mother. But many historians do not believe, of course, that he wrote the Book of Mormon by himself, and especially that he transcribed it from Reformed Egyptian. But the story goes, when he was transcribing it, he had his wife Emma helping him. But she fell ill with a rough pregnancy. And so he asked a childhood friend, Martin Harris, to assist him. Now, according to several Masonic scholars, he also convinced Harris to finance the publishing of the book by telling him he'd been told by God that if Harris did not, he'd be stricken down, dead. Allegedly, Harris sold his family farm to get the money. And of course, that upset Harris's wife, greatly. She was really concerned he'd been spending the family money and so much time on this book. So, to appease her, Harris asked Smith if he could take some of the writings of the book and show it to his wife, kind of to let her know that they were really doing something serious. And so, while in their possession the first 116 pages of the book were lost. There's not really any clear explanation as to how it happened. So, of course, this freaked out Joseph Smith because 
he was braggadocious and had been telling people he was about to bring something forth, this revelation to change the world. So about three weeks go by, and so Joseph Smith had this idea that, well, I'll tell the people I was visited by another holy angel, and this angel told me I did not need the gold plates to retranscribe the information once again, that the angel would just give it to me. And that thing kind of happens throughout the history of Joseph Smith and even the Mormon Church. When something big happens and they really need to change something, then they say, I had another divine revelation, another visitation. So that is a pretty convenient thing, don't you think? Now, some people say, well, what happened to the gold plates? Well, Smith, he had a story for that as well. He just said that the angel Moroni came back and took the plates and put them with the other plates for safe hiding, and they were somewhere in the mountain or the hill. I believe they call the plates altogether the Nephi, if I'm not mistaken. Now, after this, Harris kind of stopped working with him, although they stayed friendly, and he was behind the scenes still really supporting him and helping him. But then Smith asked another friend, Oliver Cowdery, to help him. And this guy was known to be much more of a learned guy than Harris, and they say that this helped move along the process of writing the book. And it was finally finished on April 7, 1829. That's the Book of Mormon. 27,000 words quoted directly from the KJV Bible, which quoting directly that many words doesn't seem like it would be that difficult the phrase, and it came to pass, mentioned numerous times. Smith even had the nerve to claim that his Book of Mormon had restored the teachings that the Catholics had taken out of the original Bible. Now, one thing that people don't realize that, as far as the Bible goes, more with the New Testament, of course, because it's newer, but as well with the Old Testament, they find copies of these documents that people had made themselves, so they've unearthed copies that were very, very old manuscripts that were copies of the Bible that date back years and years and years ago. They found them hidden in caves and in old buildings and different things like that, so it's pretty interesting when you start looking back at some of those old copies and how they've been around for a very, very long time, and that's the way that you can really tell what has been changed from the Bible with these copies of manuscripts that have been unearthed. Some have been buried under earth, different things like that. It's just like any other manuscripts that have been found over time. But on May 15, 1829, during the time that Joseph Smith and his assistant Oliver Cowdery were writing the Book of Mormon, they were visited, they claim, of course, by John the Baptist, who conferred what they called the Aaronic Priesthood on them. Later that same month, Peter, James, and John, the disciples, visited Joseph and Oliver, conferring the Melchizedek Priesthood on them. These priesthood powers were thus restored back to earth, having previously vanished with the death of Christ's disciples. And that was from a book called The Mormon Cult by an ex-Mormon who had stayed in the church for a very long time, was pretty high up in the church, and actually was one of their guys over in China because they're all over the world. Now, Joseph Smith, he plagiarized the Bible and several other books to base the Book of Mormon on, 
One being Ethan Smith's view of the Hebrews. Now, that's why I said it's interesting that he said that these gold plates were Reformed Egyptian instead of Hebrew. And you're going to find out here. Ethan Smith's view of the Hebrews book made the false claim that the American Indians were descendants of the lost tribes of Israel who, in 600 and 2000 B.C., came over to North America. This is Joseph Smith's idea by wooden submarines equipped with stones which shone extremely bright for deep water traveling. I've heard that they've even got so-called replicas of these boats. He claimed that this group of Jews, which he called the Jaredites, journeyed straight from the Tower of Babel. That's when, if you don't know, God dispersed all the people because they were trying to build a tower to heaven and he made them speak different languages. Modern DNA has refuted this claim. American Indians are descendants from China who traveled through Siberia to North America via a land bridge in Alaska. The legend goes that the tribe had a split with one another, calling themselves Nephites and the other Lamanites. Now, this is interesting. A little reminiscent of the Seth versus Cain bloodlines idea that the Rosicrucians and I think maybe even the Freemasons believe. Uh, Nephites were lovers of God, like the bloodline of Seth, and obeyed his teachings. But the Lamanites were similar to the descendants of Cain, wicked and disobedient. Now, for their actions, get this, for their evil, wicked actions, God punished them by turning their skin dark. Now, oddly enough, in Smith's myth, the American Indians had whitish, not reddish skin. Eventually, the Nephites beat the Lamanites into the wilderness. Now, from what I've read, the Book of Mormon subject matter is greatly based on how the Nephites would shift from being obedient and loving towards God to disobedient evildoers back and forth. This is just like the story of the Israelites in the Old Testament. Now, Smith also claims that there was a great battle fought on Hill Cumorah in New York, there where he found the plates, where the Lamanites actually defeated the Nephites. The interesting thing is there is zero archaeological evidence to support this claim. Now, such a battle in hand-to-hand combat would have surely left behind the remnants of the slain bodies, animals, cups and plates, uh, fragments of weaponry, different things like that. Now, the Mormon church has actually spent a lot of money trying to unearth stuff like that, and every now and then they'll find something and claim that it has something to do with that, but they've never really had anything that they could prove. A fellow Mormon by the name of Thomas Stewart Ferguson spent a quarter of a century trying to uncover evidence of Smith's claims. He had these different grants from, I believe it was Brigham Young University and other places. He was so distressed, he just finally gave up, I believe that he stayed with the church for a while and then eventually left. And it's kind of interesting. The Book of Mormon's text has changed several times throughout history. And actually, the first story, they call it the first vision of Joseph Smith when he allegedly was praying at 14 and saw the pillar of light. In some of the different stories, he says, you know, that he was talking to God and then God 
introduced him to Jesus. But that story has changed around nine different times over the years. You know, I was talking about how they just decide, well, we get this visitation from this holy being and we can change this, that, or the other. And it seems like, especially since the 80s, and since this book that I'll be quoting from quite a bit, The Godmakers, and there was a two documentary series as well under that name, came out, they've changed a lot of different things. Since the original days, allegedly God has changed his mind on polygamy. Now that used to be a staple. You had to be a polygamist to become saved and go to the celestial heaven. And another thing that they changed was in 1978, they finally decided to let blacks into the priesthood. They also used to teach that Adam from the Bible, Adam and Eve, is also God. They used to make everyone take the Masonic blood oath, the one that says I will have my guts ripped out, my eyes poked out, the exact blood oath that the Masons used to take, which I think now, according to the things I've read, the Masons stopped doing that in the late 90s as well because it's so disgusting. And people started finding out about it. And when these controversies happen, these kind of organizations will sometimes change what they do. It's all about PR because they want to keep money coming in. Now, if I didn't mention this, it was a former member named Latanya C. Scott who wrote that Smith was brought up on charges of fraud for charging fees to lead expeditions, promising to use his peep stone to find buried items for his customers. And back to letting blacks in 1978 become a part of the Mormon priesthood. Before then, Mormons could testify to blacks, but they couldn't allow them into the priesthood. Isn't that something? You go back to the Lamanites being punished by God and having dark skin. This is insane. This is really insane. Any type of so-called religion that would not let members into the fold because of the color of their skin, it's just mind-blowing. Now, another thing that's interesting is Smith also claimed that these Hebrews, who were eventually the American Indians, but not the red-skinned Indians, they were a white-skinned tribe, came over here and built all these magnificent cities. And there's no archaeological evidence of these cities either. Now, I mentioned the book was called The View of the Hebrews, and this is where they think Smith got the whole idea of saying that the Indians were descendants of the Hebrews from Babylon. There was another writer, another book. It says here, and this is a book I'm reading from. It is called The Mormon Conspiracy by Charles L. Wood. Other writers have provided evidence that Solomon Spaulding's manuscript, titled Manuscript Found, actually contained the words Nephi and Lehi, which were used by Joseph Smith. The manuscript described the Jewish origin of the American Indians and the battles between the Nephites and Lamanites. Walter Martin has researched the origins of the Book of Mormon and maintains that the historical portions of the book were transferred directly from one of Solomon Spaulding's manuscripts. This connection has been denied by the Mormon Church authorities, using as part of the denial a Spaulding found manuscript from Oberlin College in Ohio, clearly showing, according to them, 
that there is no relationship between it and the Book of Mormon. However, Martin shows that Spalding wrote many manuscripts, and he reviews the testimony of Johann Spalding, Solomon's brother, and his wife Martha Spalding, in which they testify that the history of part of the Book of Mormon was directly transferred from Spalding's work. And it says, E.D. Howe, Mormonism Unveiled, 1834. Yes, and they used to teach, they don't any longer, that Adam was God. And that the real Eden, which they still believe, is in Missouri. Here is a sample here. Heavenly Father Adam moved into the Garden of Eden, which was located in Jackson County, Missouri, with one of his wives named Eve. Roughly 4,000 years later, when it was Jesus' turn to appear on the scene, the Heavenly Father physically begat Jesus in the flesh with the woman we all know as the Virgin Mary. In other words, he knew Mary in the biblical sense, but respected her enough in the morning to allow her to keep the title virgin. Now from the book, The Mormon Cult, it says, When our father Adam came into the Garden of Eden, he came into it with a celestial body and brought Eve, one of his wives, with him. He helped to make and organize this world. He is Michael, the archangel, the ancient of days, about whom the holy men have written and spoken. He is our father and our God and the only God with whom we have to do. When the virgin, Mary, conceived the child Jesus, the Father had begotten him in his own likeness. He was not begotten by the Holy Spirit. And who is the Father? He is the first of the human family. And when he took a tabernacle, it was begotten by his Father in heaven, after the same manner as the tabernacles of Cain, Abel, and the rest of the sons and daughters of Adam and Eve. Jesus is our elder brother, and he was begotten in the flesh by the same character that was in the Garden of Eden. And who is our Father in heaven? Now let all who may hear these doctrines pause, for they may make light of them, or treat them with indifference, for they will prove their salvation or damnation. That was Brigham Young from Journal of Discourses. Brigham Young was the one who took over the Mormon church after Joseph Smith was killed. And it actually was proven that Joseph Smith had signed the church over to his son, Joseph Smith III. But oddly enough, Brigham Young ended up taking the vast majority of people with him, and Joseph Smith III was kind of written out of the history books. And there was actually a split there at first when certain people decided they would back Joseph Smith III but then more people started taking to Brigham Young, and the rest is history. And there are three main books in the Mormon Church, of course, is the Book of Mormon, Doctrines and Covenants, and the Pearl of Great Price. It's pretty interesting. The prophet, whoever is the head of the Mormon Church at the time, has full reign. It's like a king, basically. And whatever he says goes... And even his words are above their holy books, including the Christian Bible. But that shouldn't really surprise anyone because they're blaspheming Christianity, stealing stuff, changing stuff. It's pretty wild. And to prove that, speaking before the student body of Brigham Young University at a BYU devotional held at the Marriott Center Assembly Hall on February 26, 1980, the president then 
Ezra Taft Benson, who briefly succeeded the President Spencer W. Kimball as the prophet of the church, made it clear again that the living oracles, is what they call these prophets, wield absolute authority over every faithful Mormon. Keep your eye on the president of the church. If he ever tells you to do anything and it is wrong and you do it, the Lord will bless you for it. Titled Follow the Prophet, his address with its 14 points emphasized that the utterances of the president of the church, who is prophet, seer, and revelator, take precedence over all else, including the Bible and the Book of Mormon and whatever past prophets even Joseph Smith may have said. As evidence that this has been a long official position of the Mormon church, Benson said, quote, Brigham Young took the stand and took the Bible, the Book of Mormon, and the Doctrine and Covenants and laid them down. Brother Brigham said, When compared with the living oracles, those books are nothing to me. Those books do not convey the word of God direct to us now, as do the words of the prophet or man bearing the holy priesthood in our day and generation. I would rather have the living oracles than all the writings in these books. Brother Joseph said to the congregation, Brother Brigham has told you the word of the Lord, and he has told you the truth. Kind of reminds me of Jim Jones in that one video where he's throwing down the Bible and cursing it. These guys are insane, and they'll say anything to keep their power and keep leading. Now, this is one of my favorite parts. I don't know why. It's just kind of funny. According to the book of Abraham, that is not part of the Bible. That's a Mormon book. They believe the original God, Elohim, lived with his wives, many wives, on a star called Kolob, which is said to be the nearest star to heaven. They say that Elohim physically impregnated Mary, which we heard earlier, and Jesus is just the brother of Lucifer, and so is every Mormon. Now, before earth was inhabited, now this is the story of how the world, our earth, was inhabited. This is what they believe, and this is what they teach to this day. Jesus and Lucifer, the brothers, both made pleas to the elders, this council, of how they wanted to inhabit the earth. Now, Jesus had the best plan to give people their own will, free will and other things, of course, uh, allow them to learn from their mistakes. And according to them, caught up in revenge, Lucifer, his brother, decided to lead a revolt and talked two-thirds of the other angels or brothers into rebelling against God. From their book, Abraham 3.3 reads, And the Lord said unto me, These are the governing ones, and the name of the great one is Kolob because it is near unto me, for I am the Lord thy God. So, some say Kolob is a planet, others say a star. Verse 9 in the same chapter adds that Kolob is set nigh unto the throne of God. Now, I've read that some members say that Kolob is rarely ever mentioned and it doesn't play that big of a deal, but it's in their origins. And I've added an article in here that says more on Kolob from a Mormon scholar. Now, they've got some wild views on Jesus and God and other things. I told you they think that Jesus and God are brothers. Joseph Smith said, The mind or the intelligence 
which man possesses is co-equal or co-eternal with God himself. The intelligence of spirits had no beginning, neither will it have an end. The God of Mormonism is not transcendent. While the God of the Bible makes it clear that he is not like man, Mormon leaders have insisted that their God is an exalted human being. Joseph Smith declared God himself was once as we are now and is an exalted man and sits enthroned in yonder heavens. And Mormonism is basically kind of polytheistic. Another Joseph Smith quote, I wish to declare I have always and in all congregations when I have preached on the subject of the deity, it has been the plurality of gods. That's from their history of the church. Brigham Young, the second in command, the second prophet said, How many gods there are, I do not know. But there never was time when there were no gods. That's Journal of Discourses. Mormon apostle Orson Pratt taught, We were begotten by our Father in heaven. The person of our Father in heaven was begotten on a previous heavenly world by his Father. And again, he was begotten by a still more ancient Father. And so on, from one generation to the next. As from the seer. The God of Mormonism is not immutable. Whereas God's perfection makes it never necessary for him to change, the God of Mormonism changes both in his physical person and moral attributes. This is demonstrated by the fact that he evolved from a man into a God and that he has changed decrees which are theoretically unalterable. Examples of this would be, as I mentioned before, the abandonment of polygamy in 1890, the reversal of the man which withheld the LDS priesthood from blacks in 78, and the changes in the LDS temple ceremony in 1980. The God of Mormonism is not eternally God. Joseph Smith taught that God was not always God when he stated, We have imagined and supposed that God was God from all eternity. I will refute the idea and take away the veil so that you may see. That's from his teachings, page 345. Because the LDS God is limited to a physical body, he is not omnipresent. Brigham Young said, Some would have us believe that God is present everywhere. It is not so. That's from Journal of Discourses. The LDS Apostle James Talmage stated that neither God the Father nor any actual person of any one member of the Godhead can be physically present in more than one place at one time. That's from Articles of Faith. The Mormon God's omnipresence is fulfilled through the Holy Spirit, which, according to the Mormon Apostle John Widstow, is not to be confused with the Holy Ghost. Mormon author W. Cleon Skousen, that name should sound familiar, stated that God is God only because another force sustains him as such. He wrote, Through modern revelation we learn that the universe is filled with vast numbers of intelligences. And we further learn that the Elohim is God simply because all of these intelligences honor and sustain him as such. Since God acquired the honor and sustaining influence of all things, it follows as a corollary that if he should ever do anything to violate the confidence or sense of justice of these intelligences, they would promptly withdraw their support and the power of God would disintegrate. He would cease to be God. That's from the first 2,000 years. The LDS Apostle Orson Hyde said, 
God, our Heavenly Father, was perhaps once a child, and immortal like we are, and rose step by step in the scale of progress. In the school of advancement, has moved forward and overcome until he has arrived at the point where he is now. Again, Journal of Discourses. Past President Joseph Fielding Smith declared, To enter the celestial and obtain exaltation, it is necessary that the whole law be kept. Now, no one could keep the law and never break it. No one could not sin ever at all. No human being is capable of never doing anything wrong. So if that's what you have to accomplish to get to go to the celestial place in Mormonism, then it's absolutely impossible and unattainable by any. And if you are a Christian, you know that the Bible says, You are my witnesses, saith the Lord and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe in me, and understand that I am he. Before me there was no God formed, neither shall there be after me. Isaiah forty-three ten and 11. The Mormon God does not forgive sins from their doctrines and covenants. 82, 7, it warns, And now verily I say unto you, I, the Lord, will not lay any sin to your charge, Go your ways and sin no more, but unto the soul who sinneth shall the former sins return, saith the Lord your God. So your sins will return on you. You never really get forgiveness. Now there is a definite new age bend to Mormonism, and that is because I think that Joseph Smith was a Freemason and heavily into Masonry, and Masons, you know, they love all these different occult books. And we'll get into that and just how deeply masonry plays a part of Mormonism. It's even more so than I thought. But right now, we're going to look a little bit into some other teachings. Leading Mormon authority Milton R. Hunter wrote, Mormon prophets have continuously taught the sublime truth that God the Eternal Father was once a mortal man who passed through the school of earth, similar to that through which we are now passing. That's a very New Age thinking. You know, they think that we're going to be reincarnated until we all do it right, and then we can all live as one, this monism. So it's very akin to Rosicrucianism, Theosophy, and other things. In uh, Godmakers, it says, He became God, an exalted being through obedience to the same eternal gospel truths, that we are given opportunity today to obey. The mystery religions, the pagan rivals of Christianity, taught emphatically the doctrine that men may become gods. Pretty much every secret society teaches that. Hermes declared, We must not shrink from saying that a man on earth is a mortal god and that God in heaven is an immortal man. This thought very closely resembles the teachings of the prophet Joseph Smith and of the president, Lorenzo Snow. So Mormonism openly aligns itself with what its own leaders identify as pagan rivals of Christianity. It even boasts that the gospel of men becoming gods is an ancient occult belief. How then can Mormons claim to be the only true Christians upon earth? Simply because Joseph Smith said so. And how do they know he told the truth? By a feeling called burning in the bosom. This is a big part of Mormonism. It's a feeling. And they tell you, if you get this burning feeling in your bosom, then something is true. 
It's the ultimate criteria for judging the truth. But behold, I say unto you, you must study it out in your own mind. Then you must ask me if it is right. And if it is right, I will cause that your bosom shall burn within you. Therefore, you shall feel that it is right. Mormonism is like many of the secret societies and mystery religions. You are a god, you just don't know it. You haven't found your true potential. It's kind of like Hinduism. So you're an unrealized god. And through apotheosis, you can just become god. But then they also teach, there's a lot of contradictions here, no salvation for you Mormons unless you believe in Joseph Smith. There's several popular Mormon hymns which offer glory and honor to Joseph Smith. That's not that weird. One of the favorites includes the following lines. Praise to the man who communed with Jehovah. Honored and blessed be his ever great name. Great is his glory and endless in his priesthood. Earth must atone for the blood of that man. Because Joseph Smith was killed. Hail to the prophet, ascended to heaven, mingling with gods. He can plan for his brethren. Death cannot conquer the hero again. Long shall his blood, which was shed by assassins, plead into heaven while the earth lauds his fame. In the same hymnal, in the hymn Joseph the Seer, he is given the status of Savior. He pleads their cause in the courts above. He died. He died for those he loved. He reigns. He reigns in the realms above, unchanged in death with a Savior's love. He pleads their cause in the courts above. The saints, the saints, his only pride. For them he lived, for them he died. Also from the Godmakers. President Joseph Fielding Smith, and I'm not sure if that was a relative of Smith's or not. That's more of a modern prophet. He made the clear quote when he said, There is no salvation without accepting Joseph Smith. If Joseph Smith was verily a prophet, and if he told the truth when he said that he stood in the presence of angels sent from the Lord, and obtain the keys of authority and the commandment to organize the church of Jesus Christ once again upon the earth, then his knowledge is of the most vital importance to the entire world. No man can reject that testimony without incurring the most dreadful consequences, for he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And Brigham Young, the second prophet, and probably the most famous besides Joseph, said, No man or woman in this dispensation, will ever enter the celestial kingdom of God without the consent of Joseph Smith. Now, one thing they believe is you have three levels of heaven, or as they call it, three levels or degrees of glory. They have, one, the celestial, which is the highest, then the terrestrial, and the third would be telestial, which is not even an English word, but it was created by Joseph Smith. And it's a mix between terrestrial and celestial. And this is the Mormon dictionary here. It says, At the final judgment, all except the devil, his angels, and those who become sons of perdition during mortal life will be assigned to one of the three kingdoms of glory. The devil and his followers will be assigned a kingdom without glory. The celestial kingdom is reserved for those who receive a testimony of Jesus and fully embrace the gospel. That is, they have faith in Jesus, repent of their sins, and are baptized by immersion by one having authority, receive the Holy Ghost by laying of hands, and endure the righteousness. All who attain this kingdom shall dwell with the presence of God and his Christ forever and ever. The terrestrial, 
The inhabitants of the terrestrial kingdom are described as the honorable people of the earth who received a testimony of Jesus, but were not sufficiently valiant in that testimony to obey all the principles and the ordinances of the gospel. Also, those of the heathen nations who died without law, who are honorable, but who do not accept the fullness of the gospel in the post-earthly spirit world, are candidates for the terrestrial glory, the celestial glory. Those who on earth are liars, sorcerers, whoremongers, and adulterers, who receive not the gospel or the testimony of Jesus or the prophets, go to the celestial kingdom. They are judged unworthy of being resurrected at the second coming and are given additional time in hell to repent and prepare themselves for a later resurrection and placement into a kingdom of lesser glory. But they still have time to repent, I believe, if I'm not mistaken. And it's crazy because these guys, they just mix so many different doctrines up. They can do anything they want because they made a new religion. In 1830, they made a new religion. And they've just been adding to it and taking away when people complain ever since. It's really interesting. Now, don't get me wrong. I think there's probably many, many good people who are Mormons, really good people. And they pay their tithes to the organization. And those people who are brought up in it, they just think that it's right because they don't know anything else. So, you know, I don't want to come off as just being really, really hateful and ugly towards anyone who's a Mormon because I've met some Mormons who are very nice, good people, I believe. So I want to make that clear. Now, at one time, there were 60,000 or so Mormon missionaries or elders spread out all around the world. Now, the numbers are waning, but they continue to build more temples. And if you've seen these temples, they're magnificent magnificent structures. Now, used to was mostly younger people in their 20s or so, but now retired couples are starting to do this more and more. They usually go out in pairs of either two young men or women or older couples, retired usually. And they always appear very polite and eager to talk to people, very nice, dressed well. They don't get paid, but for two years they finance themselves while out in the field. They may be in Hawaii, they may be in China, they may be in Africa. But before they begin the mission, they receive weeks of training at the LDS Missionary Training Center in Provo, Utah. From what I've read, many, especially the younger ones, return before their time is over, before the two years is over, from the stress and the pushback they receive while trying to convert others. Because a lot of people understand that these teachings are wacky and that Joseph Smith and his teachings are pretty easily refutable when you know them. While Mormons are on assignment in other countries, they are forbidden from partaking in local cultures and even watching or reading the news. And he says that Mormonism is as much a culture as it is a religion. And I'd say that's true for most religions in modern times. And really, any kind of organization that requires you to believe certain things, whether it's political, social, whatever, it's more about fitting in, paying your dues, 
and kind of going along with whatever the leaders say. And if things change, well, you need to change with them. Then about actually sticking to what was originally taught or what the organization was originally about. That seems to be the way everything's going nowadays. And that's partly because I think the leaders in many, many organizations, secular, religious, whatever, are crooked, and, and they always want to do what keeps them in power, makes them more wealthy, assures that they or their family can continue in the organization. That just seems to be the way it's done. All right, this concludes the first episode on Mormonism, Perception in the Mind, and I hope you enjoyed it. I can't wait to bring you part two, which will include a dive on the royal priesthoods, on the marriages or the ceilings, the marrying of the dead, and also the influence of Freemasonry, which was much, much greater than I first imagined. I'd say it's the foundation stone, pun intended, of Mormonism. And if people like this first episode and hopefully the second then I may do a dive on the death of Joseph Smith and whether or not there's proof he actually was killed along with his brother in the Carthage jail because there's a whole nother conspiracy there. Now, I want to thank my patrons first off. I want to thank Marty, Mark, thank you James, Bill, the producer, thank you, Peterson, Kevin, Chris, Rooster, Flat Dark and Earthy, Mr. John William Brisson, Greg, Kilowatt, Kathleen, Sir Tim of the Tunnels, Aaron, David, Jack Allen from Conspiracy or Just a Coincidence, and James. Thank you all for being loyal friends and supporters of the Oddcast. Now, I also want to thank my podcasting family at alternatecurrentradio.com. Get over there and check out their wonderful website. You can look at my shows and all the other fine talk and music shows over there. Please support them if you can. Also, thank you to FringeRadioNetwork.com for posting up the show. Thank you to John William Brisson for posting some of the oddcasts on his fine YouTube page. We've read the documents. And if you get a chance, please share the show. Tell other people about it. Sharing helps a lot. Also, if you can, leave me a good review on whatever platform you listen to the show on, and I will talk to you soon. Cheers and blessings, and remember, their order is not our order. See you guys. He's late.